Hello, and welcome to the Retired Blackout Artist Podcast, coming to you from the Red Couch Studio. My voice is very nasally. Uh, Allergies, gosh, anybody else messing with allergies this spring? Usually they don't bother me. I had a little secret and I quit using it last year. Oil of oregano. So I started taking it again. Put a little drop underneath my tongue every morning. And that usually will keep the allergies away. Worked for three years. I quit taking it last year. So now I'm back on it. Do that every day, folks. It will help with a lot of things. So um, I'm reading this book. the lower river and it's about a guy who has gone to Africa started a school helping this village this tiny village they see him kind of like a chief he leaves when his father dies goes back to the United States and lives there gets married has a child fast forward he gets divorced goes back to Africa like 30 40 years later to this village, hoping to find his one true love. When he gets there, the village, of course, is nothing. The school's gone. Everything is um, is run down. The the chief, everything's very criminal. Every they want money. They just want to kind of keep him captive. And now he's finding that the place that he loved. The woman he loved, it's not the same. He wants to leave after a couple of weeks there. <clears throat> and he's unable to because they're keeping him captive because they want to uh, take his money. And and um, anyway, so and it reminded me just now that as I was kind of finishing the book that that's like our addiction, right? <clears throat> it takes us captive. It wants to keep us miserable. It wants to take everything from us anything any joy and here we are stuck in it and sometimes it's like you you just can't find a way out you can't you can't escape it at all so anyway the similarities I can find in in certain situations or in readings um today's guest Bo Bo Payne he's bringing the pain he's telling us about his pain his sobriety date is December 3rd of 2016 um he was signed by the florida marlins so he's a big sports guy baseball in particular pitcher and you know his story he tells us about his journey and um it's very sometimes it gets a little bit like he said you know warning because it can get kind of graphic but Man, that's what addiction does to us. It makes us do things that we normally would not do just to get that fixed, just to get that feeling. Luckily, he made it to the other side. He's one of, you know, many retired blackout artists. He's one of many that, um, you know, can see the daylight now, and he enjoys life every day. And it's very inspiring, you know, to see that someone can go down even even if you have a bad childhood or your childhood's not bad, um, you know, you can overcome those circumstances. You don't have to stay an addict. You can be retired from it. So anyway, listen, uh, look for the similarities because I think you're going to find a lot of similarities in his story. And thanks for tuning in. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nice to nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh well, thank you for agreeing to do it. This is awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> What's the weather like out there in uh, Idaho? It's, <clears throat> we get strange weather. We get it's like 110 in the summer, and then we get blizzards all the time in, in the winter, and then the springtime. Okay, so this Saturday it'll be 85. Well. Tomorrow it'll be 85, and today it's high of like 51. Yeah, it sounds like it, Missouri. It, it's a lot like Missouri, you know. And and I'm from Tennessee, and I've spent a lot of time in, in Missouri, and you know, and all over the South. And it just we don't get the humidity that y'all get, but yeah, but we get that blazing because we're in a we're in kind of a bowl. It's a desert kind of kind of deal. So I don't know. I'm out of here in like a year, a year and a half. I'm going back to Florida anyway. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, the, the panhandle. Um, I went to high school in Miami and that's like its own world in itself. You know, it's like, <laughs> it should be its own country. I like it, but um, I know like Panama City Beach, Pensacola, uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama, Tallahassee, all around that, that area because I love college football and I love sunshine. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. and I've had so many injuries and I can't deal with these these winters anymore so i'm right there with you yeah i've always lived you know here around kansas city and i'm like why (laughs) especially in the winters (laughs) yeah kc is god i i was thinking you know because i'm a huge patriots fan i was like oh and i have that picture of tom brady up there i was like she's probably gonna hate me for this (laughs) being from kc and stuff (laughs) you have to switch it out for a mahomes uh picture up there (laughs) i I like Mahomes. I, he's great. He's fantastic. I think he's such a good representative of, you know, just, just a good, of what a good ambassador is. I, you know, but yeah, an ambassador. It's just that he's, you know, I mean, you guys kill us now. We, we, we're terrible. The Patriots are, but, but we had some good battles. Oh yeah. 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 Funny. I, yeah. I went to, uh, um, oh shoot to San Fernando Valley in January for a, AA conference and one of my friends out there he's a he's a Raiders all the way so anytime Raiders and Chiefs play you know he's always so one of the girls that went with me she had her Chiefs jersey so before we left he's dropping us off at the airport and she made him take a picture (laughs) wearing the Chiefs jersey Ah, nice 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 see that's a real rivalry I mean you know the Chiefs Raiders Broncos Mm -hmm. um the, the the Patriots thing kind of got manufactured with the Chiefs in the you know the last five or six years when Mahomes came and then right. they had the, the whole narrative of the old man Brady trying to keep the young buck down still you know and the, yeah. trying to hold off the passing of the guard type type of thing and so yeah, I, <laughs> so I'm a huge sports fan so yeah but yeah, baseball is like your major thing right obviously it is it is baseball is my religion. It's means everything to me. I was, uh, yeah, I really messed that up a long time ago, you know, but eh, it's just part of my story. But. Part of your story. Yeah. We're a baseball yeah. family. I have four kids, three boys. They've all played baseball. Our youngest one, he's a freshman in high school. And I think he's going to be like the best athlete out of all four kids. He, um, freshman and he broke the school yeah. record for um, the high school record for steals. So he's a little he's so got speed, huh? Yeah. 
so these guys that's so cool um i'm a royals fan not a huge huge royals fan but i've always liked them <clears throat> um i'll I'm almost 49 in a couple months. So I grew up in the era of George Brett and, and all those great, you know, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties Royals teams. And I got to meet a bunch of those guys when I was a kid. I don't know if you remember names like Willie Wilson or Frank mm -hmm. White or guys like that. And so I met a lot of those guys when I was a kid and I just, and I remember vividly there was the 1980 world series when they lost to the Phillies and just crying my, oh, really? <laughs> and so, and, and I have these publishers I work with and they're from Kansas city. I think I mentioned that to you and yeah. big baseball guys, big baseball guys too. And, and one of the guys that uh, owns the company was a quarterback in Mizzou. Oh, uh, really? 2011, 2015. He, he was a backup. His name is Alex Demchek. Okay. Um, he walked on to Mizzou and, and played for four years. So, yeah, so there's a lot of Missouri KC kind of connection there. We have to get you a second home here. <laughs> I, the weather's too, I, I love the bar, the weather's too much. But that's cool about your about your boys and about your kids yeah. playing baseball. Yeah. To me, it's the greatest sport, sport ever. But. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about the – he plays football also, but um, baseball, I don't have to worry about the injuries as much. Although, I think he's probably broken more, uh, you know, bone hands and fingers and yeah, stuff, yeah. <laughs> sliding and, and – I mean, people think that baseball is, oh, you know, it's a non-contact game. And, I mean, I've had five rotator cut, five shoulder surgeries. Have you? Not all, of it is not all of it is attributed to baseball. I think three of them were. Um, on my right shoulder. And then I've recently, the last few years, had two major ones on my left. And, and I, you know, so, I mean, it's any kind of sport, you know, you're going to get banged up. You're going to, I mean, I've taken, you know, I've hit guys with 94 mile hour fastballs. I've taken them off the, off the rev my ribs broken. I, I was pitching one time and I threw real hard. So, you know, naturally when, it, when someone makes real good contact, the ball's going to come off the bat even faster than someone who's throwing slow. And I happen to throw a fastball this guy just turned it around on me and hit me in my sternum. Oh my gosh. Baseball. It didn't break it. Didn't break any breastbone or anything, but I had the seams of the baseball. Uh, you could see them for honestly about five weeks. In the middle oh my, of my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I didn't, yeah, they took me right out of the game. But, Knocked so the wind I, out of you I, and everything. Probably. Completely, <laughs> completely. Completely. And then I had, you know, baseball seems on me stuck Gosh. for at least four or five weeks. But <laughs> so do you mind yeah. using your last name? No, not okay. at all. So we have Bo Payne. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 94 uh, draft pick, right? For the Florida Marlins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So in your sobriety date, I'll let you go ahead and, and say it. I've got it here by me, but I'll let you go ahead and kind of get into your story. Uh, sure. My, do, you, do you want me just to go ahead and just kind of tell? Yeah, tell my let's story just jump in. And, chronologically, okay. Yeah, um, and I'll just kind right. of hit you up for questions or maybe stop you and get a little bit more detail. Just before we go, um, you know, some of my story is quite graphic and, you know, things like that. And I'm not really sure how much I always kind of ask people, you want me to dive into that? Or, you know, there's a, a lot of every single box of abuse imaginable is checked. I mean, I have no problem talking about anything. My life's an open book, but it's sometimes it's not for everybody. <laughs> well, we'll, just, we'll get it all because you know what? Um, 
like I told you, there's over a hundred countries that listen and not that it's big, big podcast, but just that, you know, people are going to listen to your story, not because you're a baseball player and all that, but because they can relate Mm -hmm. to everything that you've gone through. So yeah, I want to hear it all. All right. Sounds good. Well, my name is uh, Bo Payne and uh, Chastity, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And, um, I, uh, my, well, first of all, my sobriety date is December 3rd, 2016. So I'm about five and a half years clean and sober and, uh, yeah, happy about it. My That's life awesome. has changed uh, for infinitely for the better and continues to doesn't mean there's not roadblocks and, and life is definitely not, you know, unicorns and rainbows every day, but it certainly has improved, uh, you know, a thousandfold and then some. I'm going to ask you something real quick. I'm already going to stop. So, because I celebrated five years in February. And so, you know, we're like real close in time. Do you feel like the pink cloud is over? Do you feel like now shit's getting real? You know, my answer to this is not going to be what most people say, but it's, it's my, my lived experience is that no, I've been on almost a six year pink cloud and I know that sounds, some people like, oh yeah, really? Okay, whatever, dude. But it's just that I have so much gratitude for the life that I live today, having spent so many years in jails and penitentiaries and, and homeless shelters and, and doing awful stuff, you know, and living on streets and, and going through a lot of really nasty stuff that I feel like I've come out of a, a haze, you know, a 40-year haze. And I just... I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't apologize for it. You know, I, I have my yeah. down, I, I don't really, really have down days. I have down moments, you know, and maybe periods of time, but, but really I just insist on being happy and, and, and enjoying life. So maybe it's not a complete and total pink cloud, but it's certainly, it's certainly a happier, happier way to live. That's for sure. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I just don't find it. I don't find it personally any, um, any benefit about complaining about things all the time. I just, I, I like to live in the solution. All right. Okay. Now the life does get real, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I'll continue. So definitely, life gets real, no doubt. No doubt. Saying life, life's this, but uh, I just have a great way of dealing with things. Instead, you know, my solution to my problems doesn't lie in the bottle. You know, a bottle of Jack Daniels or or drugs or that kind of thing. My solution is, um, you know, fellowship and, and my program. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm very open to anybody's program, whatever's working for you, stick with it. I'm from right. that camp, you know, but I, I, you know, so I don't judge people. Oh, you're not an AA or you're like, I'm like, great. Whatever's working for you. Awesome. You know, but, but the way that I, you know, I have a sponsor, I sponsor guys, I go to meetings. I, I have faith, very strong faith. And uh, I have a way to live. It's just like a great template of living that uh, has really changed my life. So I'll get into my story a little bit. Chastity. I was born in Tennessee, real close to, to Missouri, I was uh, West Tennessee, just outside of Memphis in a little town, not a little town. Uh, yeah, I guess it's a little town called Jackson, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And yep. And uh, they're all Cardinals fans in Tennessee. No <laughs> baseball. <laughs> and I grew up a Red Sox fan. So we had our issues. <laughs> and uh, I'm also an, I'm also a diehard Alabama football fan. And my entire family went to University of Tennessee at Knoxville. So yeah, I know. I get it. Don't worry. I I'm used to it. 
<laughs> but so they call me a traitor and I'm like, whatever. I've been a fan since I was five years old in 1978. Yeah. But anyway, so um, I guess a general theme throughout my life. And, and, uh, and first of all, I want to preface this by saying I am, I, I, I am in no shape or form a victim. I don't live in victimhood. I don't, I don't blame other people for things now. However, I did for many years and it just kept me stuck forever. Um, people can have things happen to them. They can go through things. They can be victimized. Definitely. But I found personally, my own experiences that when I stopped, when I realized that I'm literally living in this. I'm literally blaming everyone else for my problems, my struggles. And it's just, it's just keeping me stuck in, in permanent addiction and alcoholism and everything. So I just, I stopped living that way. I said, yeah, these things happen. A lot of things happen, but it's what I do today and moving forward and I can control that narrative. And so I want to make sure that I don't portray myself as, as, as a victim because I certainly don't live that way. Um, but one of the common themes that in my household growing up was violence, dysfunctional violence and pretty, pretty gnarly violence too. Um, I'm the only alcoholic that I know in my family. I have issues with, with drug addiction too. Um, but I, I identify, I guess, you know, as an alcoholic, when I go to meetings, I, I announce myself um, as an alcoholic. I don't announce myself as anything else. I respect the program, you know, but I have like a lot of people do other issues too with other substances. <clears throat> so my dad is a Vietnam veteran and, uh, this would be 1977. I was four years old and my mom was pregnant with my little sister, who's uh, who now has grown up to be a fantastic superstar. She's the head coach, head women's basketball coach at the University of Colorado. In, in oh, wow. And she's done real, yeah, so she's done real well for herself. And she's, she's my angel, which I'll get into a little bit later on. Um, and so while my mom was pregnant with uh, JR, JR is her name, her, her, given name is Allie Murray, but we call her JR um, <clears throat> for a long time. She was a mean little kid when she was young, and she reminded us all of JR Ewing from Dallas. I don't know <laughs> if you remember that show. Yes. She was a little brute, so we all started calling her JR when she was like three. <laughs> she was just mean. <laughs> but, but anyway, so, you know, my dad, uh, I don't know what he was like before Vietnam. I, you know, I was born in 73. He came back in 69, 68, 69. He did a tour and a half. He got hurt. And do a second tour, I believe. But so three years later, um, I was born in '77. Uh, my sister was born as my mother was giving birth or in labor in the hospital. Uh, my father said to my mom, "She's like, uh, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I don't need to stick around for this. Why should I be around for this?" And my mom said, "Because it's your child. What are you talking about?" And uh, and he says, "Well, I've seen women squat down in the rice paddies in Vietnam and squat out babies. I don't need to be a part of this. I've already seen a thousand of these." And we and I don't remember this personally, but this is secondhand stuff from my mom and my sister, and and to today I just can't even fathom somebody saying that to their wife, let alone you know, and their you know their own child. So uh, he left us <clears throat> shortly after, moved to Dallas, and so it was my mom, myself, and a brand new sister, and we were in Memphis. To, or not Memphis, excuse me, Jackson, Tennessee, because we, uh, my mom and dad were, I guess my mom wanted us to be born in Tennessee. And then at the time, I believe my mom was trying to finish up her doctorate degree at Tulane in New Orleans. So I think we moved back to New Orleans. And a lot of this is kind of fuzzy because, you know, I was four years old. So 
45 years ago. And uh, we either moved back to New Orleans or stayed in, stayed in West Tennessee. I can't, can't remember. But anyways, I started going to Dallas every month to, to visit my dad. Um, and uh, just because he demanded it. And I didn't really, I wasn't old enough to grasp what a terrible human being he was at the time. You know, and, and it was fun for me. And this is, this is kind of strange. It's like I remember being five years old and learning how to navigate airports and learning how to get on and off planes and learning how to read boarding passes and learning how. And then I remember, you know, they would obviously have somebody older, you know, kind of escort you through the airport to your next plane or to, you know, because you're so young. But I remember looking at, at the bars and seeing all these really nice looking businessmen and, and, and pretty women, you know, having drinks and, and it all looked so fascinating to me, even as, as like a five-year-old kid. And um, obviously I learned later on in life that for me, alcohol was a, a giant lie in every aspect. But so I thought that was a, looking back in retrospect, that was a little bit of a growing up period that most five-year-olds really don't need to have anything to do with, you know, as far as navigating airports and being infatuated with bars and, and men in business suits and, and women looking nice, that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so I, I think maybe I was just really kind of enamored with the whole thing at an early age. And I, I grew up fast because I was always on my own, you know, or, or shuttled back and forth to different cities or different places. And so anyways, um, a couple of years later, my parents got back together. Um, we still don't know why to this day, and it doesn't even really matter because my, you know, you know, my mother is just one of my greatest, greatest friends I've ever had in my life, and um, there was a lot, and I'll get into that a little bit too. But <clears throat> so people make mistakes. I certainly made my share, yeah. and my dad had uh, graduated from Vanderbilt, so my both my parents are really educated. I have a, uh, a high school GED from a, a state penitentiary. <laughs> so, you know, and I, and I'm not dumb. I've just made terrible mistakes and, yeah. and you know, and kicked out of a million, <clears throat> excuse me, kicked out of a million schools and, and, and this and that. So, um, my dad got a job at Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So everyone packed up and moved up North, great white North in BC, Vancouver, BC. And, uh, <clears throat> this is when I would have been probably seven by the time, I guess around 1980, and so I started playing sports uh, on, you know, basketball, soccer, baseball, football, hockey. You know, obviously learn learn how to skate. You know, that's right. a big thing in, in Canada. Learn how to speak French, which is it's like for us down here, I think Spanish is second language in the U.S. French is what's taught in schools up there. Um, and my dad was the coach of all my teams because he was a good high school athlete. And then he went to college briefly at University of Oregon running track. And then he, I don't know what happened. He ended up. Going, to, going in the army and became an infantry officer actually and was a was a very good soldier and and, and i'm very appreciative of his service mm -hmm. um that's about all i'm appreciative of him for, but i'm a veteran myself and i you know have nothing but respect for people like that however so i i get the parents um i understand that coaches especially being a, a coach's son that your ex my expectations or his expectations of me were were higher. And I, I get that. I understand that. I was generally uh, one of the better players, if not the best player on the teams that I played with. Um, looking back, uh, I had a responsibility to be good, you know, because I was good. And But what the lengths to what my father took things to became just absolutely insane. 
just and it set the the tone for my life of living in constant fear of everything you know um like literally i'll 49 in two months and i stopped being in fear of things when i was like 42 or 43 just I just lived in a constant state of anxiety, a constant state of fear. And I'll just give you, Chastity, a couple, maybe a couple incidents just to kind of highlight how he was to me as, as a kid, as, as a coach to me. So um, I remember in 11th grade one time, and I've shared this story, for, uh, you know, freely, <clears throat> not 11th grade, excuse me, 6th or 7th grade. I was 11 years old, and I was playing basketball, and I had a crappy first half. Um Turned the ball over a few times. My hero was Larry Bird for the Celtics. And so yeah. I always wanted to imitate how he shot and how he passed. And, you know, little kids want to imitate our heroes, our sports heroes. And I'm sure you have a lot of guys trying to throw the ball like Mahomes and Casey. Oh, <laughs> really yeah. Young guys. yeah. <laughs> you know, and and, um, and I had a really bad half. You know, I turned the ball over, missed a bunch of shots, whatever. No big deal. There's like 22 people in the stands, you know. And, and, and my father's thing was always – you know, you embarrassed me in front of all these people. You know, you embarrassed me, you embarrassed yourself, you embarrassed the family. And every time he'd say this, you know, I'm thinking, well, we're not it. This isn't the Boston Garden, you know, or the Madison Square Garden. There's there's not 25,000 people here to watch this game. There's just a few parents here. You're what are 11. you talking about? So anyways, <laughs> I'm 11. Yeah, I'm all, you know, exactly. It's just, and, and at, the at the time, I... I thought some of this, but I, I really didn't have enough time to really process anything because life moved so fast and there was so much violence. And so he took me across the street to a, an old gas station bathroom, just dingy, nasty, you know, um, the men's room where they have the trough or, you know, whatever. Then they have the, uh, the individual stalls and, and just really gross old, you know, 1980s dingy bathroom type mm -hmm. stuff. And, and he would, and he took me in and, and instantly, you know, threw me up against the wall and granted, I'm, you know, I'm an 11 year old kid. I've got an orange uniform on and these parts is typical, same old stuff. You're embarrassing me. You're, you're, how could you, you know, we work on so much stuff together and how could you just blatantly disregard what I, what I've asked you to do? And, and you're a joke and you'll never do anything and you're pathetic. And I popped off to him and uh, he, I remember him slapping me and he cut my lip and then he opens one of the stalls to the bathroom to the toilets and he says get on your knees i'm like whoa and but he's just like violent like black eyes right now at this point he's lost it he's gone and he used to blame everything on vietnam but i but I, that's not acceptable to use that that kind of stuff as a, as a cop out and so he would he popped the seat up and grabbed my hair and kept dunking my head into the toilet and flushing it and there was feces and excrement and and all kinds of stuff in there and urinal cakes. And I, you know, I was just covered in everything. It was just disgusting. And, um, it was, you know, I kind of learned to deal with the physical stuff as, as I went on in life with him, but the verbal and the emotional stuff really, really wrecked me for a long time. It made me feel lower than low. It destroyed my self-esteem, my self-worth, my self-confidence. I had, you know, I walked with my head down. I, I, couldn't talk to women. I, I couldn't talk to men. I mean, I couldn't talk to any, you know, I just was so scared of everything. So anyways, to wrap that story up, uh, got to go back and play the second half. And I've got blue urinal cake on my, oh my gosh, uniform. this was at halftime. This, this was at halftime. Yeah. So, and my hair is just soaking wet and I've just reeked like bathroom gosh. stuff. And it's just, it was a really, really bad scene. 
And uh, I think I had like 20 points in the second half or something. You know, I was damn sure I wasn't going to turn the ball over anymore. And and just uh, and so that was just kind of a thing. And then, you know, and I think that I don't know why he did that stuff. He's a sociopath straight up because he's never apologized for any of it. He's never. And I don't care. I don't. I'll get to that later, too. Um, another example, chastity. Uh, this is baseball tournaments. We'd play like uh, maybe I was eight or nine, 10 years old, even even 11, maybe. Uh, we play a little bit out of the city, you know, maybe 45 minutes. And so there's a long ride home at night. You know, the tournaments get over late. Maybe the championship games doesn't get over until eight at night. And so anyways, we come home. And even if I, I played great, even if I went like four for five with two homers, two doubles, and I struck out my fifth at bat. Well, I would have the living crack, crap kicked out of me for the strikeout. You know, he's like, you, again, he'd launch into the, how could you embarrass me in front of these people? You're supposed to, you know, you struck out. I'm like, dude, I just hit two, two jacks, two doubles, like seven RBIs. They gave me the MVP of the tournament and you're losing your mind on me. Mm -hmm. Never, never, never good enough. So common theme that led throughout the decades of my life. Is I was never good enough for anything. And I'm not blaming, well, it was a big reason why I turned out the way I did. However, um, it's also a big reason how I turned out the way I am now, which is 100% different than because I learned to harness everything and I learned to change the narrative. I, I controlled my narrative in my life, not him, not anybody else. So um, so we'd come home from tournaments. He'd kick me out of the head, this big Bronco, you know, back in the 80s. And uh, he'd, he'd kick me out of the car or the truck. And he'd get out and come around and he'd throw me in a ditch or something like that, and, you know, spit on me or just something really demoralizing, like spitting on people. He'd always do that, you know, and that's like, I'd rather get hit than spat on. It's just it's a really nasty thing to do to somebody. And uh, launch into his same old, old, boring, generic, you know, you embarrass me type stuff. And then he would leave. And so I'm out there at like pitch black at like midnight or 11 p.m. There's no cell phones back then. I'm thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do? How am I going to get home? And I'm a kid. And so then he would play this psychotic game of circling around about 20 minutes later and say, are you ever going to do this again to me? And I'm like, do what? In my head. But I'm saying, no, no, sir, I'm, I'll never do it again. And he'll say, get in the car. And then right when I try to get in the truck, he'll take off again. And he would do the same thing and it'd take about 20 minutes to, for him to come back around. And he's like, I just want to make sure you're learning your lesson. And it's just looking back on it, it's just absolutely just psychotic. And uh, so that just kind of laid the, you know, he was unfaithful to my mother all the time. You know, they, they ended up getting divorced, I think, when, again, for the second time when I was 11 or 12, maybe 12. And that was the last time uh, that my mom who I love and my dad ever really had a, a relationship. Um, so moving forward, uh, I, you know, the first time it, like it talks about it in our literature, you know, I, the first time I the great elixir, you know, I, I found alcohol and I was looking for an escape so bad because I just was so terrified. It's just like on just terrible, constant state of anxiety. And, and it just crippled me and everything. I had crippling anxiety, panic attacks, everything. And so, uh, I found, actually, I, I smoked marijuana when I was 11. It was the first time I got high, and, and it changed the way my, my, my mental outlook looked on things, the way I felt physically. I could, like, take a big breath, you know. I felt funnier, you know. I felt like I fit in, because I never felt like I fit in anywhere, you know, with, with all this stuff going on. 
yeah. 12 years old is the first time I, I drank. And now that really took things to a different level to where I thought I was just the coolest guy, you know, ever. And it was what I was looking for for so long. I felt, you know, I was like people, people were actually, you know, my buddies, I had buddies, you know, but, but like I felt better looking or I felt like my jokes were funnier or I felt like, you know, I fit in and I felt like I was just, I didn't have to deal with that other part of my life anymore. And I didn't even care. I would get, you know, get drunk and, and go home and take the you know, whatever. I didn't care. It was a way for me to escape. But here's the problem too, is that um, I liked it, <laughs> you know, just on, on its own. You know, I liked the way it made me feel. And then I would drink essentially because we like the way it makes us feel, you know, that's a big part of it. You know, there's, there's so many components to why alcoholics become alcoholics. One component for me. And someone in your case, I mean, like the high anxiety and everything all the time, it probably just made you like have some relief from all of that. Just kind of mellowed you out. And yeah, get it. I might. My hand, yeah, my, my hand shook, my heart raced all the time, uh, even when I was younger, not due to alcoholism, which happened later. But And when I could drink, it was like this giant exhale of relief, you know, and, and so I just turned to it all the time. And then I found out that I liked it, and so I went back to it over and over. And by the age of 15, I was a full-blown junkie and alcoholic. Um, and people always ask me, well, how did you maintain baseball and stuff like that? And I'll get into that briefly um, because I was never, ever my best version of myself ever anything. Um, but I, but I still had a lot of talent and I maintained a little bit. So moving on, um, my parents divorced and I didn't have a whole lot. with My mom and I chose to stay with my mother because, and I didn't have a ton of contact with my dad. I mean, he, they lived in the same city. Uh, I think he may have coached one team that I played on, you know, but, uh, but he didn't have custody of me. My mother did. And I don't think he wanted the responsibility of custody for kids. So um, this is another incident that really shaped my life uh, for the negative moving forward. So my buddies and I were in downtown Vancouver. I was, I, I still can't remember if I was 14 or just turned 15. I think I was like late 14. And I was kind of the out, outspoken one of our little teenage crew and whatever. And we were down in a real seedy area, you know, a real crappy area of town where there's strip clubs and, and, and prostitution and drugs and all that stuff. And all we wanted to do was get some weed and we wanted to be downtown. And we thought we were like so cool, you know, with all these little blinking triple X signs and all these shady looking <laughs> characters and, you know, and all this stuff. And this one guy, saw these this little huddled mass of four or five guys of my me and my friends, my myself and my friends. And obviously we were down there looking for something. Right. You know, what, yeah. what and, and he said, what are you guys doing? And I said, we're looking and I spoke up. I said, we're looking for marijuana. And he says, follow me. And I looked at my buddies and they're like, oh, don't go. And I'm like, I got this. Don't worry about it. So he lived above a uh kind of like an adult shop in this yeah. really dingy apartment where a bunch of people lived and kind of the one where the ladder comes down on the side and then you kind of <laughs> go up and, and then there's like one bathroom for every floor. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Nasty, <laughs> nasty. And um, so I follow him to his little room slash apartment down the hallway and uh, open the door. There's one room in the, in kind of like a small little living room. And then there's a small room in the back where he left. He said, I'll be back. So I assumed he was going to get some marijuana and his buddy is sitting on the couch uh, and he's got a bottle. I still remember it was, it was uh, wild Turkey whiskey, you know, bourbon. 
And he says, do you want to, you want a drink shot? I said, sure. Why not? You know, and drank the shot and, and I'm sitting there like really right next to him. And, uh, Few minutes pass by. He says, "You want another shot?" I said, "Yeah, sure." And then I'm like, "Where's your Where's your friend?" You know, he's like, "Oh, he'll be out in a second. So I'm kind of buzzed up, and and uh, you know, it's real, just feeling like something not good is about to happen. You know? But still, I wanted to get the weed. And I wanted to be the big shot for my friends, and I wasn't thinking clearly. So the man comes out of the little back room in the back and uh, asks me straight up. He says, "Have you ever tried heroin?" And I said, "Well, no." No, I don't even know. I know what it is, but I've never even seen it. And they say, well, do you want to? And I said, I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Why not? You know, I'm buzzed up. I was just, didn't care anymore. I'd already, I'd lost at age 14. I had already lost care for all life. And uh, so he, you know, he cooked it up and they tied my arm off, shot it into my arm. And instantly they didn't force it on me. Um, but instantly I just couldn't move. You know, I was so, I don't know if, anyone who's ever done heroin can, can understand this. It just felt like the, the most beautiful thing I've ever felt in my life. And that, that was a problem that later on, I'll explain that to you. But what happened after that is that I was raped and, and sexually assaulted by these two men pretty viciously. And I couldn't move because I was drunk and, and I couldn't fight back or anything. I didn't know what was going on. And they really did a number on me. And when they were done, gave me a little bag of weed, get, get the hell out of here. And, it was a mess, you know, and so I stumbled down the hallway and stumbled down the little ladder thing and out in the alley and my buddies are like, what's going on? Where have you been? And I'm like, and I show them the little bag of weed. So everything's fine. And that was, you know, obviously I didn't say, you know, I was embarrassed. Just that you didn't mention anything that happened, right? To them? No, not nothing, nothing. I was, I, I was ashamed, thought I'd be called, you know, names and, and just, it just was not a good thing <clears throat> at all. So, um, the problem with that incident, there's many problems with that incident. Mm -hmm. And the reason I talk about this stuff is because I'm certainly not the only one that goes through stuff like that. There are, you know, sexual abuse, physical, emotional, verbal abuse is prevalent all over the world. And I think that so many people, as myself did for a lot of years, sat in shame about it, blame myself for it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't, I said, I must have done something wrong for these people to do these things to me, including my, you know, and I realized later in life that wasn't the case, but the problem with that night, Chastity, is that I still, to this day, as, as I'm talking to you, remember more vividly how I felt when that needle went into my arm than when those men raped me. And that seems insane to think, but it's just, it's just fact. It's just, I'll never forget how it felt. I'm not glamorizing it at all because it is the big lie. <clears throat> Drugs and alcohol to an addict and alcoholic do nothing but destroy us. But I still remember, you know, and that kept me going for a long time as far as chasing that feeling and chasing that high. And then I would be, you know, I would say to myself, well, why are you doing it? You know, when you know these terrible things happen, but the strength and power of drugs and alcohol carried that over me. Yeah. That made that, that, uh, that worth it, you know, because you really wanted that high, you wanted that feeling again. And so if these other things happen, you know, that might be the price to pay, but at least I'm getting, that high exactly yeah and and the price to pay to say like you and i just talking right now on on the surface it, it doesn't it, it seems insane you know or, or to someone like how why would you pay that price you know but i think it got to the point where i needed it and i, and I can discuss that a little bit later where i was completely and totally dependent upon 
drugs and alcohol every day, you know, if I wasn't passed out, I was drunk or high because I shook in the morning all day, you know, uh, I needed pills and whiskey just to calm down. Then I would throw it up and then I would, you know, smoke meth to get up and then take more benzodiazepines to come down during the day. Um, it, it led to homelessness, you know, it led to, you know, this is another part of my story to where I was. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm 6'4", 215 pounds. And that's like my basic walking around weight and, and height and weight. And, and uh, I was at about 165 pounds at my worst. Oh my gosh. In my late, yeah, in my late twenties, maybe 170 on a good day, <laughs> you know? And um, I was so addicted to drugs. I needed them to, to live that I was prostituting myself to, to people, you know, because to men, quite frankly, and, and I'm a, you know, hundred percent straight male. <laughs> yeah, and but... this is something that I just looked at people as conduits to get, I didn't even look at them as people, just objects. Mm -hmm. This is how I can get, this is how I can survive today because standing on a street corner with a sign that says, please help. Um, can I have some money or whatever making stuff up about, I don't know. It just didn't. So I found a different way that, that seemed to. And so that's later on in my story. So I'll kind of just briefly kind of go over the high school stuff with the baseball. Um, so I was always really, really talented, you know, and I could always, you know, at all, all these sports and I was starting to get recognition when I was, you know, 15 as, a, as kind of a future, kind of a national project in Canada. And um, I always juxtaposed these, this double life, you know, I was always had this hidden stuff that went on that I was, didn't want to tell anybody about and then tried to keep the baseball stuff going. And I was good enough even with being, you know, with all this stuff to, to still be, to still be a viable prospect and maybe have a career in it. And like I said, again, nobody ever got the best version of me ever in, in any life. They do nowadays and they have for, for, for a handful of years. But so I, we moved to uh, Miami, Florida uh, to play baseball at a better high school. You know, it's like such a hotbed for, for sports and yeah. you know, 80 degrees, 10 months a year. So we play all year and, and at this point, um, I was starting to get night terrors, you know, of, of some incidents that happened. I was starting to, and I had no confidence, no, no, you know, I had a lot of arrogance, but I had no confidence and, and, uh, good athletes need, need to be real confident in their stuff in order to, to be good, you know? And so I had all this arrogance to hide my lack of confidence, my lack of, you know, self-esteem, anything. I just didn't want to be found out that I was just the shy kid who just wanted to die from age, I think from age, maybe nine or 10 is when I started thinking about suicide all the time on a regular basis. Uh, back then I never attempted it, but I always thought about ways to do it because I just couldn't stand being on in my own skin and I couldn't stand being on this earth anymore. And so I just literally wanted to die for years and years. Um, <clears throat> there were a couple issues that happened later on in life, but so uh, I moved to Miami 11th grade junior year. I was, uh, I played, well, I was starting to get letters, you know, this is fun for me too, to kind of think back because I had yeah. my whole childhood ripped from me and I was never allowed to enjoy any of it. So I look back on it, some of the cool things I would go to our mailbox on Saturday mornings, there'd be stacks of letters from LSU, University of Miami, Florida, Florida State, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, you know, name it, you know, just big time SEC, D1 schools, you know, recruiting. And then I, then I was off you know, offered scholarships by a lot of these schools to sign early, you know, and, and this and that. And, and in baseball, a lot of guys sign out of high school because if you go to a division one school, you have to wait three years until you're eligible to turn pro. It's, it's different than um, other sports. 
where you can come right out, you know, anyway. So uh, I was, you know, going into my senior year, I was like, man, do I want to go? Cause I wanted to stay home and go to university of Miami. They're a huge, huge program. You know, Miami is Miami. It's awesome. You know, but it's just, <laughs> yeah. and it's, but you got to think for a 17 year old kid in 1990 in Miami, Florida with a drug and alcohol pro- problem, eh, there's a lot of temptation. That's and why by you, then yeah. I was, exactly. So by then I was, I was doing a lot of cocaine. I was doing speed, uh, those cross top ephedrine pills, you know, to get up for games, you know, cause I was drunk all week. Um, and I ended up getting kicked out of school my senior year. Uh, my grades dipped and I can't, you know, I just, I became academically ineligible. I lost my draft status. I was ineligible to be drafted. have to go back to high school another year as a fifth year senior. And I just didn't want any part of that. So I was projected as a, a top three round pick, you know, first, second, third round pick. And I might've gone late first round, maybe second round. And back then, you know, a signing bonus back then is two, 250 grand. And that's a lot of money for, you know, a 17, 18 year old kid. And I can't even imagine what I want. Yeah. You know, for anybody, you know, and I couldn't even imagine what I probably would have been dead within three days if I, you know, with my alcohol issues and and drug addiction. But so I had to go out West. Um, I went back to see my mom in Vancouver to stay with her for a few months. I went to a high school back then. I ended up getting kicked out of there too. Just bad grades and drinking all the time and fighting. And I was a really malcontent kid. Played a little baseball. Ended up going to a junior college in California and uh, had a good year. You know, I always had a lot of talent, but I, I could never be counted on. You know, I had, you know, I threw hard. I threw 92, 93 miles an hour. You know, I was an 18 year old kid in college. And that's, you know, again, first, second round stuff. But the problem is, is that six days later, when it was my t- turn to start another game, you know, the, the rotation mm-hmm. between five or six days, uh, we played on the weekends, you know, whether we traveled. And uh, there'd be a lot of scouts there to see, you know, because maybe the week before I threw great, you know, I had lightning stuff. Well, this time I didn't even touch 82 miles an hour on the radar gun. I reek like booze. I'm unshaven. I stink. I, I'm lethargic. My body language is horrible. My arm hurts. I mean, just everything. You can just look at me and say, this guy, God, he looks like he just got drunk all last night. <laughs> yeah. In actuality, I did. I did. <laughs> and, and so it's like the scouts would be like, why was this guy throwing 93 last week? And he can't even touch 82 this week. And he looks like he just walked out of a horror movie. You know, and so they dug a little deeper. And by that time, I actually had a criminal record for just dumb stuff. Um, not, not dumb stuff. I, I had a friend who was uh, 4th of July in 1993. I was murdered in a fight uh, that, was, that my friends and I were involved in. He was stabbed and, and he got, so I got an aggravated battery charge for that. It was just bad stuff. And so they dug deeper and they're like, wow, this guy's a criminal record. He's, he's an alcoholic. He's... I've already had his arm surgery by then. They're like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're IBM or, you know, or some big corporation or you're a baseball team or, or a prof- professional franchise. People just don't want to invest money in people like that. Right. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't matter how talented you may be, but if, you're, if your talent doesn't equate to, to results and you have all this baggage, then it's just, they're just throwing money down a empty hole so i ended up uh getting uh becoming academically ineligible with grades that year i was 19 um so i don't even know if i was eligible for draft the milwaukee brewers offered me a signing bonus not a big one fifteen twenty thousand dollars or something and then 
minor league baseball, gosh, they don't make much money at all. Like yeah. You know, and a little $10 stipend for food each day, you know, and go eat at Jack and Jack in the box or McDonald's or something. I turned it down. Uh, Cause I knew that if I could get my stuff together, I could, I could, you know, make some good money and be drafted higher. So I, um, excuse me. So I went to Seattle, Washington to another junior college, had to sit out a few months to get my grades up and became eligible. Had a good year, but the same thing. Uh, I was drunk every night, every single night. By then my drinking had gone to, to just ultimate heights every single night. And uh, again, I would throw a great one day and then the same thing the next day, it was just awful. And the last game I ever threw, uh, I was throwing, I still remember I hit 94 on the radar. And I was just lighting it up and I lost, I still remember vividly, I lost five, nothing. Uh, I gave, <laughs> I gave up one hit or two hits and one of them was a grand slam. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and I was just, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was just, but I was throwing great, but it just happens, you know? And yeah. but the, but I couldn't even lift my arm after the game. It was just destroyed. So I had another rotator cuff surgery after that. I was supposed to start our conference all-star game, you know, for the West. And then we have the East who was, and, uh, and I didn't even know. I mean, I did know. Problem was I was out drinking with my friend, my catcher that night and some other people. And he's like, aren't you supposed to s- start, start tomorrow? <laughs> tomorrow? And I'm like, no, actually, that's not like three hours. And I just skipped it. Didn't even go. Oh, you just, just skipped. Yeah, no, I just, yeah. So, I mean, there's that. And then, so my mom calls me and said, you know, when the draft came, she says, the Marlins grabbed you at late rounds. And uh, I knew the scout who, who drafted me. And, and he's like, man, you just, you know, basically threw away your whole life by the way that you've been acting the last few years. And I didn't want to tell anybody anything that my, you know, early childhood and why that kind yeah. of contributed to a lot of this stuff. And I didn't even care. I said, well, I don't care. I don't care. Do not care. I hate baseball. Uh, I don't even like you. <laughs> and uh, are you going to offer me a contract or not? And he offered me, he offered me like a, like a hat, <laughs> like a Florida Marlins hat with one of those snapback, real cheesy looking things. And I think uh-huh. the signing bonus for three or 4,000 bucks or something <laughs> at all. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. And I'm like, I'm done. And, and you know, but I needed to get my, I, I just was, I was finished. I was just done. So I, that was a pretty precipitous fall from grace from a one-time, you know, expected first, second rounder to a 71st round draft pick and nowhere to go in baseball. Um, and if I had signed with them, I would have been released. They don't have any money invested in me. So why do they want to keep a guy like me anyway? So, um, so I enlisted in the Army. And this is weird because I had, like, like what am I going to do with my life? I'm 21. I'm completely washed up playing baseball. Those were my hopes and dreams as a kid. <clears throat> I had all this stuff that, you know, I've kind of gone through as, as a young child and through my teenage years. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. And uh, I felt like I have, what am I going to do? I don't have any skills. I'm a high school dropout. Uh, I got into college on SAT scores. I had good SAT scores, high SAT scores. Um, but I really didn't have any other skills except drinking and throwing a baseball. It was pitiful. So I'm like, and this is the weird thing. Like, maybe my dad will be proud of me if I missed in the army. The man who did all of this stuff to me. Still trying you know, to so please twisted. him. Yeah. Exactly. Still trying to get his approval. Still trying to please him. And, you know, obviously, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. That stuff's above my pay, <clears throat> my pay grade. But 
I was seeking some sort of uh, validation from him or some, some him to be proud of me or something, you know, because he had gotten wind and he was very passive aggressive. He'd make marks throughout the family. Like, yeah, I figured he, he would never amount to anything as I got older, you know, and got you know, just stuff like that. So I always had this longing and, and just real quick, the, I ended up working for him in the two thousands. Uh, he was a headhunter, a recruiter, and, and we would go, it was strictly a business, uh, business deal. It wasn't really a father-son thing. And the last time I ever saw him was in the Denver airport in 2007, where we had gotten an argument about something so trivial and stupid. And he ripped up my boarding pass and said, find your own effing way home. Yeah. And I've never seen him since. And it's been like 15, 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, spoken with him maybe once or twice in 15 years. Um, but anyway, so I enlisted in the Army. Uh, I was in the infantry, had to go in the infantry. So if it went in anything else, I probably would have been kicked out of my house because all men in my family that have been in the military have to go in the infantry, either Marine Corps or Army. So I chose to go to the Army, and I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, and then I went to Airborne School, and I went, ended up going to a station at the 101st Airborne in, Fort, in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, or Fort Hamill, Kentucky, right on the state line. And uh, I just continued to drink and drink and drink and drink. It was, uh, I'm fortunate it was between, between wars, so it was peacetime, you know, so we did a lot of deploying throughout the country and a lot of, uh, you know, we were always on alert and stuff like that because we were a real high-speed infantry unit, but we didn't have to go, um, you know, there weren't any real wars going on, so unfortunately not to have been involved in that. So I uh, had a girl at the time and she became pregnant and uh, we're still great friends to this day. And my son's turned out to be a wonderful young man. He's a photographer and lives in Nashville right just outside of Nashville and, and he didn't turn out anything like I did, <laughs> you know, um, and, and I'm very, very proud of him. And so, but I got orders for Alaska. So I had to go to Alaska. It was either Korea or Alaska. And I'm like, I think I'll go to Alaska. And it was in Fairbank. Fairbanks is not a good place for an alcoholic. <laughs> Fairbanks is absolutely the wildest place that I've ever seen or been in my life. Um, really? So I get up there and it's, Granted, it's not Anchorage where it's very bottom of the state. Fairbanks is like halfway up the state to the Arctic Circle, halfway to the circle. And so it's, you know, 50, 55 below in the, in the winter or in the wintertime. Um, it's six months of pure, pure darkness. Uh, summer times are beautiful. It's 80, 80, you know, 80 degrees, you know, 24 hours sunlight. But it really does a number on you. But problem is, is that that city is where that city is full of just gangsters. And you've... You've got all the fishermen that have been out at sea for six months and they come back and they've just got stacks and wads of cash. And then you've got all the, the, the military personnel um, and there's such a heavy drinking culture in the military. And then you've got a lot of the there's so many racial, ten, you know, racial issues and tension in that city, in that state, because they're the native folks that live up there versus, you know, the people who come to that state. And I'm not saying right or wrong on either side. I'm just saying that's that's what yes. goes on. And uh, the bars don't close until 5 a.m. Then they, they reopen at 7. Um, there's, you know, motorcycle gangs, bi- biker gangs, Hells Angels, all that stuff. Kind of run all the, the nefarious stuff that goes on up there. And it's just crazy. Everyone packs a gun. Everyone has a knife. You know, it's like normal mom and dad, mom and pa, they all pack guns up there. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just crazy. And then you factor in when the, the fall through the spring comes where it's just pitch black for, you know, 22, 23 hours a day. That'd be so depressing. Uh, depression starts to hit a lot of people. <laughs> it, it really can be. And so what, it, what do folks do? A lot of them turn to, 
to alcohol and to drugs and to that crazy life. And, you know, and so every springtime, I'm not sure if you know this, but it's kind of amusing and kind of sad too, that it's springtime in Alaska, they call it breakup season. So it's when it starts to get a little bit warmer and all the snow starts to, to break up. So it becomes kind of icy and gross because everyone throws their trash and, you know, out their window. It's just gross. But so as the snow dissipates and becomes ice, and the ice turns to water and it gets warmer as you move, move through spring, there's always three or four dead people they find, you know, um, that have been under the, under the ice and snow for five, six months, who back in the fall were wandering around drinking and got so drunk that they didn't realize how cold it was. They passed out in a snowdrift. Um, maybe it dumped five, you know, three or four feet that night and then no one ever saw him again. You know, so just that, that kind of crazy stuff, you know, it's just, I don't know. Anyway, so I ended up <clears throat> not re-enlisting and I got out of the army. I flew to, it was, I still remember it was 52 below when I left. It was in January of 97 or 98. I can't remember. And I flew to Nashville to see my new son, who was, uh, I think, about 10 months old at the time. And I was going to try to make a go of it with his mom. And we, we had these plans. And a beautiful young young, young kid, you know, actually grew up great and did well. Um, but I just couldn't stop drinking. You know, I, uh, we moved back on kind of close to the base where I was at Fort Campbell. Had buddies there from the past. And I was not faithful. And I just, I just couldn't stop drinking. I just, every day, I just drank, drank, drank. And, uh... So that just didn't work out. So I moved back. Where did I go? I came back to uh, Vancouver briefly, stayed with my mom to try to regroup and figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I got a code, call from a coach at this baseball uh, national powerhouse in Idaho called Lewis Clark State College. They're NAI school, but they're 20-time national champions. Um, all kinds of guys have gone through there that played in the big leagues. They're just a, a, not a Division One school. They're a school for a lot of guys like me who had a lot of talent draftable guys but had crappy grades or you know some issues and and the coach who recently just passed away a couple of months ago it was really sad because he's a national icon and uh, he said you come here and you walk on and i'm gonna give you a scholarship and you walk on and you plan you prove to me that you can do this again um give you a scholarship and, and see where it goes and by that time i was only 23 and maybe 24 you know so not i mean old baseball wise but not old enough to make a comeback and obviously I was like, wow, I have another shot at playing ball baseball, you know, making it. I got, the, you know, this big school. And so I go there and, and uh, I'm throwing a little bit and I start to throw, I'm throwing harder again, 88, 89. Suddenly I'm touching 92, 93 on the radar gun again. And I'm starting to feel good. And then all of a sudden I just, I don't know why I just start drinking. Because I, I drank because life was good. I drank because life was bad. I drank because it was Tuesday morning. I drank because it was Saturday night. I drank. I didn't need a reason. I just started drinking again. Right. And I was always, I always had all this PTSD and not from the military, but just from, you know, night terrors and stuff like that. And a lot of it was, you know, I'd wake up just in a sweat and I didn't, you know, and, and so alcohol was such a soothing thing for me, you know, just to, and it got to the point where, so I was kicked off. I wasn't allowed to play. He's like, Hey, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. See ya. I said, I understand. Thank you. And um, I was always respectful of people like that. And uh, so this, I would have been 24 or 25, something like that. And I started drinking. Yeah, I mean, I was drinking every day, but literally about 18 hours a day. Um, but I was smoking methamphetamine all day, too. So to keep me up for days. And then, uh, then I would pass out, do it again. And I just had nothing left. I mean, I was just on empty. 
And I had, um, so what did I do after that? You know, I'm constantly thinking, how am I going to have a life? How am I going to have a career? What am I going to do? I've been kicked out of everywhere I've gone. I can't stop drinking. Um, oh, so my girlfriend at the time, uh, we had uh, my daughter. I have a son and a daughter. And uh, she turned out fantastic, too. And we've recently reconnected after 10 years. And it's been nice. amazing. You know, my, my entire family, I've gotten all my relationships back. But, and, I'll, and I'll get to that. I'm sorry for being so long-winded. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, uh, so we had our daughter. And I just, you know, again, just couldn't stop drinking. And this is when I started getting arrested. And I, I got three DUIs in one year. And that was my first felony in 1998 and I ended up having to do about six months in jail for it, not prison yet. And, uh, and then I, uh, went to Walla Walla VA hospital in Washington state for my first rehab. And that was my first of, I think, 14 inpatient rehabs over the years. And I'll just kind of make this quicker because I know I'm kind of going on a lot. Is it? <clears throat> So for the next years, I spent a lot of time uh, in and out on the streets in and out of homeless shelters in and out of jail um, you know, being an absentee father, uh, there are sometimes, sometimes not stuff that I am not proud of at all, but I can't change my past. You know, I, and I've made amends for, for all of it, almost all of it. You know, I still have amends to make people, but I've done a lot of amends to people and, and been forgiven. And, um, so I moved to, let's see, I'm in Spokane, Washington. I'm doing some really bad things to get like I mentioned earlier, to get drugs and, and things were just terrible. You know, I was, I was beat up really, really bad one night at most of my room and I was stabbed and I was in the hospital for eight or nine, you know, about 10 days healing up and then just a lot of just bad stuff. And I was bouncing from place to place. So I ended up going to Seattle and uh, I just hopped a Greyhound bus one night. I said, I got to get, I have to get out of Spokane. Spokane's a really, really rough city. It's a small city. But the, there's just so much crime. Like all the bad crime from all over the U.S. It seems comes congregates in Spokane, <laughs> right Washington. There. You know, it's just crazy. Duly just noted. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you live in KC. That's you know, KC's rough. I know. But um, anyway, so I moved to Spokane, and I, I, and I, I went into a homeless shelter. It was called the Downtown Seattle Emergency Shelter, and it's like this where there's people smoking crack and sexual stuff going on in the bathroom. I was just off. It's like stuff you see off a movie, you know, and I'm just like, I can't, this is ridiculous. So I ended up moving into a halfway house, a sober house for men. This very, very nice part of Seattle in Kirkland, Bellevue uh, area where Microsoft is from and, you know, stuff like that. And I, I was always smart, you know, I was always capable. So I got a job as a mortgage broker and this was probably 2004. So all through the, the 2000s, you know, up until, the world blew up in 2008, the crash, uh, you know, the finance industry, anybody could walk off the street and you're making 300 a year just yeah. by, you know, just by knowing a little bit, you know? And, and so I stayed sober ish. I, I call it for a few years. Um, but then my gambling problem got really, really out of control. Ah. Yeah, online sports betting, Las Vegas, stuff like that. And I would always end up absolutely broke. And, um, the financial crisis happened in 08 and my sister was coaching basketball at Boise state in Boise, Idaho. She was an assistant and I'm like, well, I'd been down there visiting to watch football. You know, it's a good football program here. Um, right. I was like, why don't I just take it, take a year or two off and, uh, and I, you know, I've got a little bit of money, you know, not a lot, but enough to, you know, and it's Idaho. It's not Bellevue, Washington. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, 
not expensive to live here, which is not the truth anymore. It's, it's actually, it's the worst place to live as far as, and that's besides the point. So I get down there and I hadn't had a drink in probably eight months. And uh, I'm checking the place out and I'm walking around and I'm walking outside this, uh, I'm living with a friend of mine and I go down into kind of this part where there's bars in the city and I see this big sign that says Shooter Jennings tonight as Waylon Jennings' son. And uh, I'm, I'm a huge Shooter Jennings fan, Waylon Jennings fan too. But, and I'm like, probably shouldn't go in there. But and I'm it's going to. Day, but I'm <laughs> going to go check it out. Because I see roadies bringing in, you know, speakers and amps and guitars and all that stuff. And, and so I go in there and I've got a Red Sox hat on. And the owner of the damn bar happens to be from Boston. And he's, and he's like, well, we're closed. He's like, oh, you got a Red Sox hat on. Because they were sort of setting up for the concert that night. I right. said, come on in and I'll show you, show you around. So he puts a beer in front of me and it seemed like, you know, probably an hour at least before I drank it. But no, it was probably like 10 seconds. I just grabbed it and drank it and I was off. Yeah. And then so uh, a couple months later, I got another DUI and I ended up getting 10 years in prison for it. Did I didn't do all the 10 years. I did like two and a half in prison or on that one. And then uh, this was 2008 because that was my fourth DUI within 10 years in the state of Idaho. Um, I was released and I had to go into a program called drug courts and was kicked out of that about a year and a half later and went back to prison for a year and a half and then went back to actually about five years. And there was a, there was a small break in it. Um, and so I was released a handful of years ago and um, I never looked back. I got out. I was in a prison upstate in Idaho. And uh, I took a bus home. It was about an eight-hour bus ride home. I got off the bus. I checked into my court-ordered halfway house. And this is, like I said, years ago. And uh, went straight to a meeting that night. And uh, I never looked back. And one day at a time, I'm clean and sober. I've got a great career. I'm, I'm healthy. I, my relationships with my, you know, my, my children are slow, but surely enough, you know, coming along. My mother is one of my greatest friends, my greatest advocates, um, I used to say I, everyone left me, you know, what was me, blah, blah, blah. But I right. really did push everybody out, out of my life. And the only person that ever remained with me through it all was my sister. Um, she never gave up on me and she always encouraged me. She would come and drag me out of bars, crack houses or homeless shelters and, and get me fixed up where I needed to go, you know, or give me a hotel for a night or something. She didn't know what to do, which I was her brother and she loved me and she never gave up on me. Um, you know, she's not a drinker or anything like that. And so, uh, JR is her name. She's one of my greatest friends too. Um, life is just wonderful, you know, but I started working a program. I started everything I thought I knew about recovery or I thought about life. I just ditched and I started listening to people that had been successful. And, uh, there wasn't any, like if my sponsor said, I want you to do this, there wasn't any, yeah, well, I've already read that. You know, there was like, okay, yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> you're willing to do you, it now you know absolutely i became completely willing because i just i got so tired of like you have a lot of time to think when you're in prison you're an eight by ten prison cell and you're doing years and so it's like i started to think i'm like what's the one common denominator about all this stuff and i said <laughs> yeah well a lot of stuff i've gone through a lot of stuff i've had a rough life okay i get that a lot of people have had a rough life but the one common denominator here is me i'm the one that is making this choice to do all these things and I said, man, I am really sick. I have just destroyed so many people's lives and my life. And, and, and I have got to do something about this. Like I'm 41 at the time or something and getting out soon. And I'm like, whoa, man, 
Like your life is just passed by like that and you have zero to show for it. Yeah. And so I just, just, so I got sober the last year in prison because in prison is such a, there's alcohol, drugs, everything you ever want. I was always involved in that when I was in jails and prisons, but I quit all that and I started going to meetings and I started working with other guys and I started coaching, you know, like recreational. So we have softball leagues and stuff like that, you know, and, and basketball tournaments. And, and I just started changing my life around. And like I said, I hit the door run, checked into my halfway house, uh, went to a meeting that night and, uh, and I haven't looked back. And I, I have guys that I sponsor and, and they, you know, some do the deal, some don't, <laughs> you know, the ones yeah. that do the deal get to pass it on to other men. And it's just, it's just beautiful, you know, and, and, and like you said, we're, we're very close in our sobriety dates and, and uh, I'm just, you know, I'm sure I look forward to numbers, I guess, you know, but I really do a good job of staying grounded in today. I put a real big emphasis on quality of sobriety and quality of life and happiness and not thinking about, Oh, I wish, I hope someday I'll be 25 years sober. Or my sponsor is 33 years sober, you know, or whatever, you know, of mm -hmm. course we all want to be sober for the rest of our lives, but the only way that I'm going to achieve that and, Folks like me, and I guess I'll speak for you, you know, I hate to do that, but, you know, us are, you know, is that we have to do the little things one day at a time in order to achieve that long-term stuff. So, you know, I was always somebody who had big dreams and aspirations, but wasn't willing to do the work and just fell flat on my face every time. So I more than willing to do the work today, and I do do it on a daily basis. And uh, life's fantastic. So, Yeah. Like you said, it's not every day is not like gold, but no, it's better than what it used to be. <laughs> every every day is not the part of the gold end of the rainbow. Every absolutely, I agree. You know, but when I have these, you know, kind of bad days or bad moments, I'm able to think back at the really bad times in my life and be grateful that I'm not there anymore. And somebody doesn't have to be abused like I was, or somebody doesn't have to be to actually physically go to prison you know, to be, to be captured in a prison, you know, I mean, the worst prison that I've ever been in is between my ears, you know, in my head and yes. you know, it is yes. truly, and, you know, and, and everybody has a, I mean, I don't even know if I believe in bottoms because I just keep, I call them trap door bottoms. I just kept going further and further down. So everybody has a story. It's all relative to the individual. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't, my story is on paper, you know, or, you know, to hear it is kind of gnarly. And that's a little bit of what I was able to tell you, but that doesn't mean that other people don't, you know, I don't know, you know, people just, they lose hope over anything. And when people lose hope, it's, that's just a really, really sad thing, you know? So I try to encourage people, you don't have to go through what I went through and you don't have to sink to the depths that I sank in order to change your life. You know, if you're not, you know, you don't have to experience just the horrors of what this disease and this disease, and I call it a disease, I firmly believe in the disease aspect of this, you know, the, the mind and the body, but it wants to kill us is the end, is the end goal. Flat out wants to kill us. And the sad thing is it doesn't want to just put us out of our misery like that. It wants to prolong it over a long stretch of years of just torturing and torturing and torturing us. Until finally we can't take anymore and we just die. Had so many friends die, fentanyl overdoses, drunk driving. And mm. It's sad. You know, I've given three eulogies at the veterans ceremony here, or, or veterans uh, cemetery here in Boise in the last few years. Just some friends that alcoholics who couldn't stop drinking, you know, stuff like this. Sad. It just sucks. You know, young kids, married, stuff like that. 
doing good. So I uh, certainly don't live that way anymore. I thank God for every single day. Yeah. And thank you for your service. I want to say that. Um, and I have a son that he's a, a Marine. And cool. so nice. I know nice. that, yeah, the military doesn't really, they're not big on uh, drinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah. um but yeah that's that's great and then, then that you sponsor guys and you listen to your sponsor and you're willing and we and when you were talking I, you know i'm thinking in my head you know it's just for today you know when we have those days really? it's just for today it's just for this moment yeah. Yeah. yeah my allergies are all can you hear i'm plugged up i sound like I don't have COVID. Oh, you're you don't fine. Have to put your mask on. It's allergies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I already went through that COVID train off last year or so. Uh, you're good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, your story, that's really great. I mean, because, like, you had high aspirations and, and I mean, you still do. Uh-huh. But, you know, on top of the world type of thing. And But it wasn't enough to keep you you know, from drinking or using what was the toughest thing? I mean, you mentioned gambling, which I just recently in the last couple of months found out I have a little gambling addiction. So working with my sponsor on that, I was just like, what the hell? Because, (laughs) you know, I've been sober for five years. Where the fuck does this come from? Um, (laughs) And she's like, she's like, yeah, this kind of sometimes happens to people who give up, you know, you're an addict. And I'm like, okay. Um, it's excitement. It's like it is the thing. It's like when we put we put down the bottle or the drug. You know, I'm I'm only speaking for myself, but it, it can feel like we just lost the love of our life. You know, or we just lost our our comfort zone or our our mode to get excitement or our, our outlet for excitement. Yeah. And so, if you're any kind of addict or alcoholic or whatever, you know, sure, gambling is like oh, it's legal in some states too now. You know, and and I'm telling you, I've been in rehabs, chastity, like alcohol rehabs, but with women, like like housewives. And I don't, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but just people you would never expect. And they're like, I just mortgaged my house for the eighth time and I owe 400 and something thousand dollars on. And because they're playing the ponies at the racetrack or they're online gambling all day long. And it's just sad. Gambling destroyed me too. I mean, we can joke about it, you know, and it's kind of funny, like you get the cross addictions and stuff, but gambling can take people down a very dark road. Yeah, I'm I really don't say, I don't, yeah. Yeah, grateful that. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't sound, I don't say that to sound like some doom and gloom person. Oh, no, no, not at all. I, you know, I'm really grateful that <clears throat> I have AA, I, I'm working a program so that cool. I was able to recognize that uh, this yeah. gambling thing may be a pro- before it got like, out of hand <laughs> but the, talk about yeah, the yeah, grief yeah. you know um i remember sitting outside i was outside and messaging my sponsor and i'm like hey this was just kind of brought to my attention i think i do have a problem and just feeling that grief you know it was a grief feeling like oh something else i can't do oh you know <laughs> it's it's true it's like oh great you've taken that from me now you take this from me what are you going to take from me and so it's like that's where when i made the decision finally get sober i'm like dude are you going to be 
happy in sobriety or are you just going to be miserable? And because I've been miserable in sobriety too, back when I've had a little pockets of, you know, a year here, eight months there, you know, or whatever. And, and I just was like, no, I refuse. And it kind of goes back to that question you asked me about the pink cloud thing. I mean, yeah, life, life can suck on a lot of occasions, but I just, you know, I honestly, people get mad. I think they may get sick when they hear this from me sometimes, but I, I just have such gratitude for life. I love life so much. And I just refuse to be unhappy. I just do. And I'm just not going to do it. I won't let anybody bring me down. I won't let myself bring me down. Um, even through, and it's allowed me to be there for people. You know, my friends who have died over, you know, drunk driving, or drug overdoses, who their wives are left with kids. And it just is devastating, you know, or it's allowed me to be there for other people. And it's allowed me, and I can't, I can't, you know, I've got to represent myself properly. And, but I have to be, you know, authentic too. And, and I tell people, I said, there are tough times, but look, tough times don't last. Tough people do. And yeah. this too shall, this too shall pass. It will, it will go away. And you can either be standing here sober when it passes, or you can, you can go out and drink and ruin your life again and just go further down the rabbit hole. You know, the choice is up to you. And, uh, um let's see the 12-step program has helped you the most your unshakable faith in your higher power love it and your sister jr big shout out to jr yes (laughs) like is she tall also i guess basketball coach she's she's like five eleven and a half six feet almost yeah yeah, I'm she was a real good so player she's a, too. Really tall. <laughs> Say again. I said I'm five I didn't three, hear you. so yeah, she's really tall. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's yeah, she's tall. She's almost six feet. Yeah. <laughs> In the uh, gym, she was, she was a good player. Yeah, the gym is a big thing for me. It's right. um, I've had so many surgeries that it's I've just been back recently over the last four months or so because I had to take a few years off actually to get my shoulders re completely repair it again. Um, but I'm really, I love fitness. I love, because it does so much for my mental outlook on life. Um, I like feeling good. You know, I'll be 50 next year. And uh, I just, I want to be in the gym until I'm 80 years old, to be honest with you, because it's a big part of my lifestyle. It's a big part of my recovery. It's a big part of filling that void of sitting at home on a Friday day drinking all day, watching ESPN and then getting ready to go out and drink all night, you know, and just waste all my money and my life and my, you know, it just, I may have made that sound like that was fun, but there's nothing fun at all about that for me anymore because I drank at the end by myself and I shook all day and I didn't, and I had to drink and I'd throw it up and then I drink, then I could start drinking, you know, and I had, I had to drink and do drugs to get well. I didn't drink to, to feel good anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather go to the gym. I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather yeah. go to ball games. I'd rather go hang out with buddies or go. And another thing that I love too is I like being by myself. I've learned to be totally comfortable with myself. And I'm comfortable in my own skin and I'm comfortable just hanging out. I'm a big, huge sports fan. So I, I watch ball games all night, you know, all day and I don't feel any need to get drunk and scream and yell at the TV or anything like that. Or I'm in airports a lot. So um, when I, the only way I can catch a game is in a bar. And uh, I have no problem. It talks, you know, in our literature, you know, I'm in a place of neutrality with alcohol, you know, completely. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I'm not, it's just, it's not for me. And people will say, hey, do you, I'll pull up to a bar, watch a game or a seat, 
and can I buy you a drink? You know, because people are all, always talkative in, in those airport bars. I said, no, no, thank you, man. I don't drink. I appreciate it, though. And really, that's like as far as the conversation goes. I mean, we right. talk about other things, but they, they don't have, they don't. Why? Why won't you drink? Come on, let me just buy you one. Like I, I people say they experience it. I, I don't experience it. Yeah. But no. I, I just say, no, thanks, man. I don't drink. I appreciate it, though. And then I order an energy drink or a, a soda water or something, you know, or watch the game until I catch my flight. <laughs> you, know? you remember all of it. <laughs> it's, that's another, that's another, that's another nice offshoot of sobriety. Is <laughs> good stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much, Bo. Bo Payne in the house here at the Red Couch Studio. And uh, it was fabulous to talk to you and to meet you. Oh, and yeah. uh, I really enjoy your story. I mean, there were parts where you were talking. And I'm like, oh, no, don't go up there with that guy. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, I know. I can, I, can, I can see it in your face when I was done. <laughs> like, something like, bad's oh. going to happen. Like, but, he knows what's coming, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, we all have a we all have a story, and if we can articulate it well and 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 spread the message that there's so many people that these things happen to, and that's you know, the, oh, yeah. and they hear it from somebody, and then they can see like, well, that guy lives normal, and he seems to have a good life, and is pulled out of it. Then they mm-hmm. think, well, well, if he did it, then there's nothing stopping me from doing it. And that's how this thing works, you know, is spreading experience, strength and hope with other people, you know, and passing it on and passing it on. And I've had so much, you know, help in my life. I feel a huge responsibility to help. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on here and excited for everybody to hear your story. So if you ever need anything, just hit me up. Um, Yeah, just very fabulous. Very fabulous day. Made my Friday. It's Friday the thirteenth, awesome. by the way. Awesome. Not that that. Oh, it is. I didn't, even, I didn't even know that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I saw okay, something. Well, thirteenth. Was- I was born on August thirteenth, so I always thirteenth. Always. That's my number. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I read. Something Sorry, you were you were saying something this morning. Oh, here it is. It says buckle up. Today is Friday the thirteenth. Mercury is in retrograde, and there is a blood moon coming this weekend. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, well, funny. <laughs> well, well thank, happy early well, birthday. So yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I, I enjoyed meeting you and we'll have to stay in touch and, and congratulations on your sobriety. That's really cool. And you too. Everything. All right. Well, have a right. great weekend. Thank you, Bo. Okay. I will. Yeah, you're welcome, Chastity. Take care. Bye.